Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Chris Bercher, and this is still Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 154, and I'm going to call this one, What Do You Do When Autism Feels Better Than Therapy? What I want to talk about in this episode is my experience uh, with what I, I guess I'll call personal growth, and I try to make it as relevant to people as possible because I think there's a lot of people struggling through, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to, I don't really have the language to talk about this because on the one hand, you could say things like people want to be happier, people want to learn to deal with stressors in their life, like the loss of a loved one or grief or changing jobs, and many of us reach out to others to get some help. A lot of people have this um, in their own little communities. Some people can get this at the pub when they're talking to their friends or even strangers. But a lot of us seek out mentors or, or, or people in our lives to sort of help us be better people. And I don't want to imply that there's anything broken in any of this. Like I don't think it always has to be about fixing something about ourselves. But I mean, you look at the different industries, and there's plenty of people out there who are looking for assistance navigating this thing we call life. My personal experience has been with coaches and counselors and therapists and psycho psychoanalysis and with all kinds of different techniques within that sort of world, but it comes from just sort of an internal motivation to be... Get the most out of this human experience as I possibly can. And I know that I don't know everything myself. And I know that there are other people out there that know a lot more about a lot of different things that can help me. And one of the ways that I've learned how to do that is to seek the assistance of people whose job it is to help navigate this. And I got to admit, it has been a little weird because most of the counselors, therapists, sort of the traditional psychoanalytical approaches have basically told me, They're used to dealing with clients who have, I don't want to, I don't want to, I hesitate to put sort of like qualifiers on this, but with clients that have more severe issues like rape, um, you know, abuse, drug addiction, uh, and, and, and sort of helping them through those. Whereas I don't have debilitating restrictions or, 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 mechanisms or situations in my life that are that debilitating. And in many ways, this makes me feel guilty and a lot of shame about even wanting it in the first place. Like, why can't I just be happy? <laughs> and that's why I mentioned all that stuff in the first. I don't think I'm unhappy. I just, I just want to eke everything out. I want to understand myself as best as I can. And again, if you're listening to this and you made it this far and you haven't you know, thrown, thrown me away as some kind of a snowflake or some ridiculous navel-gazing, masturbatory, uh, whatever, then you must understand what I'm talking about. I mean, plenty of people can benefit from other people. It's just, it's, you know, and maybe back in the day we did this in villages, right? Maybe we, we around the campfire had these sort of discussions and got these sort of human needs met. And I do think these are very human things, not that they don't apply to other animals as well, but I think it is innate in us to gaze at our navels and to ask the question, to live the, the thoughtful life 
um, to to try to understand ourselves. I think this is very, and I think we probably used to sort of solve these problems or address these needs collectively, casually around the campfire. And to a certain degree, it may happen uh, in other countries, but certainly, it, certainly in the United States, we don't talk about these things. And I'm just sort of here to be a participant in this greater uh, community who is who are talking about these things. And so the point I want to make in this episode is that, and I've mentioned this in the last couple, and I, and like I said before, I feel a, a real shift in this whole knowledge plus experience wisdom thing becoming more and more focused. And neurodivergence is going to be a big part of that. And let me sort of, you know, shed some light on my experience. So, and, and I've always been different. You know, I was in the gifted programs in school. I, looking back on my life, I realized that I was a, a what I call a fringy kid. I wasn't in the norm, normal crowd. Uh, I didn't have normal friends. I didn't pursue normal activities. And as a result, the teachers and my parents didn't really know what to do with me. And I think when that happens historically in the United States, probably since the 70s anyway, is you either... If a kid seems to be, quote unquote, what we used to call high functioning, you put them in this group we called gifted or talented or whatever, and you sort of gave them special challenges to help them push their development intellectually in their brain or whatever. And then if a kid didn't really seem to have all the social things, uh, a, a, a good sort of mastery of basic social norms, you put them in the other end, sort of the special needs uh, category, and you gave them a different kind of a treatment. And you kind of wonder, looking back, like, if you could have switched the kids in the different groups, like, would that have changed their outcome any? Anyway, again, I, I told you before, I see this as like a normal curve. And society sort of understands people in the middle, like the whatever 25th percentile people, 25% of people that all kind of seem the same. They all kind of act the same. They're predictable. We know what to do with them. They respond to these certain things. And that's great. But anybody that falls in the tails of that normal curve, we don't really know what to do with. And historically, these are some of the things we've done. I ended up in that gifted program. I thought I was smart. I developed sort of this intellectual identity around my brain and sort of pushed that and used it as a mask or a, or a, or a, or a um, cover up for any shortcomings I might have in other departments. And I sort of said, yeah, but I'm smart. And that excuses any of these other things. And, and who knows? And so I, that was sort of my upbringing. I never really, of course, autism and Asperger's wasn't a thing. When I was growing up, and because I did have an apparent mastery of getting around in the world, I could dress myself, I could eat, I could drive a car, I could develop relationships to a certain degree, but I still never fit in with societal norms. And I, and I don't have the language to discuss this. You know what I'm talking about if you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you were probably in the societal norms. And so, you know, the world works for you. For a lot of us, it just didn't work. It doesn't make sense. I was just trying to explain this to my wife a minute ago by saying certain things about the world to me make sense at a fundamental level. And when things that actually happen in the world disagree with that, it really throws me off. It really... Uh, I kind of lose my mind. I have trouble resolving the real way that people actually behave in the world, for example, wars and violence, with the way that I think the world ought to work. Uh, not And most people probably don't have that problem. I just sort of say, well, that's how it is. Or it doesn't matter what I think. I don't know. I don't really know how these sort of normal, in the, in the, in the, in the, the vernacular of 
autism spectrum disorder, we would call these normal people allistics, you know, sort of neurotypical people that fit into this kind of middle part of the normal distribution. And then in high school, I started to have more problems getting along. This whole idea of the world wasn't the way that I thought it should be became a bigger and bigger issue. It became more and more restrictive. I started acting out. I got in-school suspension. Some of these things that were very not normal. I started smoking weed all the time. And I, you know, my parents suggested I go see a therapist. I think I did that a few times. It just didn't work out. I just didn't understand it. It didn't matter. And then uh, when I, you know, fast forward um, through my 20s, I quit smoking weed. I had a lot of anxiety. I, you know, I may have experimented with trying to get some help with that anxiety. I didn't really understand it. At the time, members of my family were starting to get prescribed SSRIs because depression and those, you know, the use of those drugs for depression and anxiety had become kind of popular in the normal world. And so they were doing these things. And I thought, well, they have these issues. Maybe I have these issues. And I remember literally it was the birth of my first child that sort of jarred my world to the certain to a degree to which I was like, I'm really struggling. And the only answer I knew to that were that I had gone to therapy at some point, and I knew that my parents and some of my siblings, some of my family members were taking drugs for what I, I assumed might be similar issues. And I basically, I, my partner at the time was not supportive of therapy, very against it. And I remember going to a doctor who at the time was like my age, you know, in their 20s. No, I was 30. And I think they actually were younger than me. And I basically said, you know, my family has depression and they're taking SSRIs and I'm having some issues and I think I might need them. And they were like, okay, you're depressed and anxious. Here's your drugs. Did that for a while. You know, I guess it helped me sort of rear my kids. I was in that marriage for a while. And then when that marriage started to end, and this was 2010, 13 years ago now, I really kind of knew I needed some help. And I had heard a lot about, and I don't know how I was comfortable with the idea of therapy, so I started this journey. And I started with counselors, and I started with sort of, you know, a, 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 um, a psychiatrist, the ones that, that can prescribe medications, although I also simultaneously stopped taking medication, and I decided that the medication was not allowing me to have enough emotional bandwidth I felt like kind of like that normal curve. The medication was keeping me in the middle and, and, and making it difficult for me to have highs and lows. And I really felt like I needed the full uh, range of my emotional complexity in order to navigate this change in my life. And so I got off of SSRIs and I haven't been on them since, although I do take uh, ben, uh, benzodiazepine and Xanax when I fly for like if I ever get extreme anxiety because I still get that. Uh, but I started instead on this sort of intellectual uh, path of counseling. And I saw social workers, so straight up counseling, kind of like in the AA kind of context, basically that. And then I saw the psychiatrist, I saw a psychologist, and a whole bunch of different people on and off for a period of about, I don't know, seven or eight years. And then I kind of got serious about it. But on this path, I learned about all of the traditional psychotherapy type tools, starting with talk therapy, And the idea that we form beliefs as kids about how the world works and we sort of assign causality in our heads independently and sometimes with the help of of guardians and our peers, we come to conclusions about if I act this way, then this happens. And if I feel this way, I can do this thing. 
And this sort of very rudimentary, superficial, kind of two-dimensional mathematical way of navigating the world with tools that work for a lot of people, based in kind of traditional psychotherapy, starting probably with Freud and a field that was definitely less than 100 years old and probably more like 30 or 40. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just going to you know come out and say right now, it didn't really work for me. Talk therapy didn't work for me because the way most of that worked... And the typical technique I've talked about on here before a lot is cognitive behavioral therapy where we understand these beliefs that we have and and we think these things work. We think if we make everybody laugh, then they'll like us and then we'll feel better. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And then you can sort of learn that you don't need to do that anymore and you can change your behavior and you can change your mind. And it's sort of the idea that our thoughts affect our actions affect our um, behaviors or something like that. And so if we want to change something about how we interface with the world, including people and things, then all we have to do is change our minds and tell ourselves, hey, you were thinking this, but it's wrong. And so if you just think this instead, you'll fix it. And that's, to me, a decent explanation about how most psychotherapeutic techniques up until probably 10 or 15 or 20 years ago in the standard procedures, you know, the majority of people understood, that's what you got. And what that did for me is it taught me intellectually about my problems and it gave me intellectual solutions to those problems. And then when I applied them, and I think I have a high degree of intellectual rigor. I got, did pretty good in college. I got all the degrees you can get. I was a college professor. I published in, you know, by all the ways that we can measure that sort of thing, including IQ tests, I score really high. You'd think if this technique were intellectual, if it were just about changing some belief system and some simple exchange of data, like taking out one SIM card and putting another one in or something, I would have been able to do it. But guess what? I wasn't. I was not able to, using my intellect, overpower the strength of these ideas and concepts and explanations I had about the world and the way it worked, no matter what I did. And again, this is like seven or eight years of hard, make trying really hard to make these things work. Uh, doubling down often again, I was not able to do it, which left me feeling bad about myself and ashamed because I had these experts telling me, do this and you'll be fixed. Or that, let's say you'll change. Let's take some of the power out of that. If you, if you do this right, then you'll be fixed. And so if you're not able to do that, there's something wrong with you. And so the whole idea that I came to therapy with is I'm struggling in the world and I need some help. And what I heard during most of that decade is you're doing it wrong. You do it this way and you'll be fixed. And when I was unable to do what was presented to me as being so simple, then I felt like now there's really something wrong with me. I've reached out for help. I was presented with a solution. And when I tried to apply that solution, I was unable to do so. So now, you know, there's no other conclusion that I could come to that, that, that except that I'm really messed up. I'm more messed up than I thought. So I kind of came out of that, if you will worse off than when I went in. <clears throat> and I'm not blaming therapy. I'm not blaming therapists. I just think 
some it doesn't work for everybody. Obviously, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, somebody may say, "Oh, you've been sad lately. Why don't you take up golf with your buddies?" And somebody may do that and be like, "You know what? Now that I'm playing golf with my buddies twice a week, I have something to look forward to. I feel a whole lot better. My life has improved. Thank you very much." It it may work out like that for lots of people. Good for them. It didn't work for me. Luckily, I had a handful of therapists that sort of said. You know, they they did. I don't think they got it. Like I would come, I would find myself then changing therapists. Like, okay, this doesn't work anymore. You keep telling me to double down on the same thing. I'm unable to do it. I got it. I got to stop. I need to regroup. And I would stop. And then eventually I would go back and find a different therapist and say, maybe this relationship would be better. Maybe, maybe somebody else will understand me differently. Maybe somebody else has a different background and maybe there's some new techniques I can try. And so I did find therapists who, uh, when I said, I get this intellectually, I get it. You're not going to get, you're not going to change me by using my, the, path, the pathway of intellect. This is not a thinking thing for me. It's much bigger than that. And so eventually there were people out there that started to apply what they call somatic techniques about, that help you get out of your brain and into your body. And the two best sort of examples of that I can think of are hypnotherapy, where you get hypnotized. I've never done that. Or meditation, where you actually get yourself into a, 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 a state that is less intellectual. You, you relax your mind and sort of, which kind of correspondingly opens yourself up to your body. And a couple of techniques I used were EMDR and IFS. I can't remember what EMDR stands for, but you look back, you look side to side, and that sort of creates a, a hypnosis like state that comp- like reduces your, uh, intellect and sort of opens up your body. That worked a little bit for me, but I couldn't get past the the silliness of it. Like it just seemed hokey. And that's my own thing. I couldn't get over it. It works great for people. And it turns out that EMDR works really good for specific situations where you can put yourself back into an experience and sort of re-experience it in the EMDR time period. So something like a real specific, like seeing somebody hurt real bad or being raped or having a, a, a very pinpoint experience that can help a lot with. But mine is so diverse and sort of um, obtuse and spread out, uh, diffuse throughout my life. It, it was hard for me to find those experiences. But it did, it did open me up to other experiences. And then when I sort of haphazardly ended up doing IFS or internal family systems work with a guy... Uh, Neil Bjorklund, who I interviewed on this show, that really started to help me accept and recognize the non-intellectual part of my being, which was a huge leap. But the IFS itself was not, I was not able to achieve some of the things that they say you can achieve with any kind of like closure or any massive like correction of thing mistakes I had made in my past or whatever. Like in IFS, you're supposed to be able to meet your protector parts who protect these exiles and then reach those exiles, which could be terrible things that happened to you when you were a child and sort of reparent those exiles and help them understand that we don't have to do these things anymore uh, in order to navigate the world and that we're now adults and we have all these new capabilities and we're not like a four-year-old kid, which is awesome. It's awesome stuff. And I got really close to doing some good work there, but uh, you know, it just, it, it still didn't work. And I realized that in any of these things, unless I was going to be able to do them with a therapist, 
at least twice weekly that the progress that I was making was not much faster than what I could do in my own now that I sort of understood these techniques. Not saying I didn't need help. It's just that the construct of therapy and that the fact that it costs me $100 to $150 per session, um, I just couldn't justify <laughs> the expense to the, 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 the slight increase in rate of my what I'll call healing. Right, and that's basically what this became. Is not about like how do I navigate the world anymore, but more about how do I heal the trauma that I've experienced in my life, that so that I can put it aside or let it stay in my past instead of being haunted by it every day. I mean, that really becomes sort of the definition of why I do this. And it wasn't until about a couple months ago when I, you know, again I took a break from the somatic stuff, and I thought, you know. I think I just need to go back and start over. I've made all these changes. I've made all these realizations. I've had all these experiences. I understand this kind of trifecta of emotional, somatic, and intellectual. And maybe if I can like find an open-minded person that gets all this stuff and that will just listen to me from the beginning and talk about what I've learned and sort of help me navigate whatever this next step is, that'd be great. And this person was the first person along this entire path that sort of said, have you ever considered that you might be autistic? That you just have this neurological limitation or gift, depending on how you look at it, that you know leads you to interpret the world a little bit differently. And does any of this, these things resonate with you? Will you take these tests and read about these things um, and see, see where, that, where that goes? <laughs> and I did that. And so... If you put that in the context of all of the techniques that I've done, whatever you want to call them, talk therapy, somatic therapy, or autism, it turns out the thing that made me feel the best about it all was the idea that I might just have a quirky nervous system that leads me to make decisions and to navigate the world a little bit differently. And that instead of trying to change myself or fix what's wrong with me, I might just need to get open to the idea that I'm actually, there's nothing wrong with me and that I can just sort of learn to deal with these things. Now, on the one hand, it's all the same thing, right? None of that really describes what's going on. There's no mechanistic causal relationships identified there. It's really just a different way of looking at it. But as I started to investigate the world of neurodivergency more, I felt much more welcome. I felt a kindredness about the whole thing. Uh, I felt more comfortable. It all made more sense. And so I'm left as a, as a you know, uh, a, a causeway to the next episode, <laughs> uh, wondering, what do you do when an autism diagnosis feels better than what you've learned in therapy? Because there's, it could be anything. It could just be completely artificial. It could be meaningful. There could be lots of different rabbit holes to go down about why that is. And then there's also sort of the idea that who cares? <laughs> you know, if it feels good, do it uh, in a sort of a hedonistic way. Uh, and so I think it's worth exploring this a little bit more. Given that so much of this podcast has been kind of about how people navigate 
the world and their interaction with it. And I think at some level, it all has to do with the idea that there is this simultaneous existence that humans have of being an individual and then being a part of the universe. And we struggle with being able to handle the seeming uh, opposition of that at the same time. Uh, And so that, I think, is at the root of people like us who want to learn a little bit more about ourselves before whatever this part of the path on planet Earth comes to an end. So with that, I think that's enough to sort of give you my story. Hopefully there's something in there you can relate to and look forward to the next episode where I get into a little bit more detail about what I learned along that path and how it differs and and how it's similar with sort of a self-diagnosis of autism versus uh, self-diagnosis of anxiety or depression or some of the more traditional therapeutic diagnoses. So yeah, this has been episode 154. What do you do when autism feels better than therapy? I'm Chris Bercher. This is still knowledge plus experience equals wisdom, but stay tuned. And uh, I'll see you next week. Take it easy.